Hello, and welcome to A Year with Jesus, where we're learning to think, live, and love like Jesus. Today, we are in Mark chapter 1 through 3. I'm Philip. And I'm Bill. And today, we actually have a special guest with us, Russ Legrone, who's one of our elders at Embry Hills. And we're really excited to have you with us as we uh, go through the Gospel of Mark. Yeah, I'm excited uh, to spend this time with you, looking through the book. Okay, so when we jump into the book of Mark, we're going to get another account of the life of Jesus. We've just finished the book of Matthew, mm-hmm. and if you're new to the podcast and you're joining us at a great time at the beginning of a new year and a beginning of a new book. But guys, how is the book of Mark different from the book of Matthew? Yeah, I mean, we know that, it, I mean, people assume it's written mostly to a Gentile audience, traditionally probably a Roman audience. I think there's a few things in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 5 and chapter 15, where he takes Hebrew phrases and he explains it, and he says, this is what it's translated to mean, this thing. I think he's doing that because the audience probably wouldn't have known what those phrases have meant, and so I think that helps us maybe see that a little bit more. So the audience is different from Matthew. That's a great insight. Uh, the, the, the pace and the starting point are different as well. He doesn't, like Matthew, start back before Jesus is born. He, he doesn't, like Luke, is the same thing as well. Um, Mark just jumps in with, with the time of John the Baptist. Jesus would have been about 30 years old already, and we're immediately into the story about Jesus. Yeah, the pace is definitely going to be different. We only have 16 chapters in this book as opposed to 28, and the pace comes across in those key words, right? And it also comes across in this first chapter where he like squeezes in so much in, in one chapter. It's almost a full year of Jesus' life that we get right at the beginning. Kind of like 10 different stories in, in one chapter just trying to show us and introduce us to this the good news of this Jesus of Nazareth. Right. And so historically, the thought is that this is probably the testimony of Peter. And we think about Peter being a man of action and a man of passion. And so this is a great gospel to be able to study, to just almost rush to this epiphany of who Jesus really is. But chapter one, verse one goes ahead and just kind of tells us that, doesn't it? Yeah. And and I think Russ was mentioning before we got started, we were talking a little bit uh, this this prophecy of Isaiah where it says, you know, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then he starts to quote Isaiah chapter 40. What would be so important about this, Russ? What's that, what stood out to you a little bit earlier? Well, in, in that chapter, if you go back to Isaiah, there's no question that the forerunner is going before God. And the reference here even about the idea of prepare the way of the Lord, we understand that that's going to be Jesus but if you understand the prophecy well, you recognize that the idea is that, that John is a forerunner of God. And eventually we've got to determine who is this Jesus. Who, what, his identity uh, is, is, a, is a question mark at the beginning, but it seems as if Mark is stamping early on, he's actually God himself. Yes, he is. And we're going to see also just right away in chapter 1, verse 4, that this baptism that John the Baptist was preaching involve both repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And if we think about Acts chapter 2 and Peter speaking on the day of Pentecost about both repentance and the forgiveness of sins, like he's so eager to let us know not just who Jesus is, but how we can begin following him. And John is a tremendous forerunner here and started to introduce those concepts. I wonder, I mean, again, thinking about even his audience, the, the Gentile audience, maybe a more Roman audience, the idea of the Son of God. You know, they would have probably thought the Caesar and the Caesar maybe, you know, providing protection or providing liberation from what from their enemies. This son of God, he's offering something different. And like you said, in chapter one, verse four, it's it's the forgiveness of sins. And so as as he continues, you even see that that the forerunner is different. He's dressed differently. He's he's out in the wilderness. People have to come to him to go hear this message. 
And so, I, again, I think from the very beginning of the book, you're already keyed into the fact that this is going to be different. This guy's going to be different. What he's providing is going to be completely different. You know, and part of that stands out in the fact that we don't begin with dialogue from Jesus. We actually begin with dialogue from heaven. Mm-hmm. What's so special here at the baptism of Jesus about this declaration in verse 11? So I, I actually love that. I think John is stylistically doing something intentional where in verse five, he says all of the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized. Speaking of everybody coming to John the Baptist and Jesus comes and the scene is completely different. Everybody else had been baptized and they were being baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. I mean, God is almost tearing the heavens open to say, this is my beloved son. He's different from everybody else. Yeah. I'm well pleased in him. I'm well pleased in the way in which he's lived his life. And I think Mark is almost opening it up for us to say, okay, well, what is it about this Jesus? What is it about his life that stands out to us? I, I like the fact that we're, we're seeing witnesses to the identity of, mm-hmm. of Jesus. We've already got John the Baptist. Well, we've got the prophecy too. I mean, you could think of it yeah. as, as a standalone mm-hmm. witness. And now you've got God speaking from heaven who he is. Uh, You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Guys, and this really brings up a great thing about the book of Mark we want people to be aware of is that Mark will often introduce a concept and then he'll elaborate with examples and miracles and stories that help us understand that concept. So here in chapter one, verse one, he's declaring that Jesus is the son of God. In chapter one, verse 11, the father is declaring that this is his son. So what are we going to see in chapter two and three to back that up? I think you're going to, I mean, there'll be some signs, there'll be some miracles that show that he, in the beginning of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three, you'll see his, some, of, some of the abilities that he has and some of the things that he says about forgiveness of sins. Okay. So we know that chapter one is going to cover almost an entire year. What are the major things we should be uh, pulling out from chapter one as we keep looking at this text? Yeah, I, I, I think at the very beginning, so he, he begins to preach. And I think this is one of the key themes in the, in the gospel of Mark that he comes into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. That's kind of like one of the things that that gets the story moving along. Uh, And and he's telling people to repent, to believe in the gospel. And then he calls these guys to come follow after him. And if if you're just reading the gospel of Mark for the very first time, this almost makes very little sense. Like these guys, they leave their jobs, they leave their dad, some of the guys do, and they follow after Jesus. But I think that the following stories are supposed to help us better understand like why, why they were willing to do that. And we see in chapter 1, verse 22, that they were amazed at his teaching. And that's another one of those uh, key phrases in, in Mark, not just that they would do something immediately or right away, but how people responded to this. And you get the sense that both Mark and that Peter are amazed at who Jesus is. Yeah, and it's not just an amazement at the, the content of the teaching. It's the authority behind it. And we're going to see a number of ways in which when he speaks, he doesn't speak as a normal speaker, even as a learned man. He really does speak with an authority from heaven uh, that's just distinct from what anybody had seen before. Yeah. And and, and, and I, what I love is that the following stories don't just emphasize his authority, which I think they continue to do as he heals people. You see his authority even over sickness. But but then his compassion shows up immediately afterwards where he's healing people. And, and even as he's going to the next cities to to go and to preach the word, a leper comes up to him. He's beseeching him. He falls on his knees. He says, not if you can, because Mark has already set up for us that he has the authority. He definitely can. But it's if you are willing, you can make me clean. And the text emphasizes that Jesus being moved with compassion did something. And so again, as we think about like why these why these fishermen would be willing to follow after Jesus, you see the authority that he has that comes from heaven, and then the compassion that he has that that moves him 
to use his authority for the sake of mankind. That's amazing. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say one other thought about uh, that incident of him doing it. Here's another witness, and mm-hmm. an, an odd witness. It's the, the demons themselves recognize that he is the Holy One of God. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he doesn't need their testimony. He tries to quiet that testimony down because there are other things, as you've already pointed out there, much more uh, profound in terms of true witnesses of who he is. But it's clear they know, yeah. you know, this is the Holy One of God. So as we start looking at this, there are a lot of reasons to want to get closer to Jesus. There were a lot of reasons to want to hear what he was speaking and witness that power and to experience that compassion. So in chapter two, we have the miracle of healing this paralyzed man. But this paralyzed man did not get there on his own. What's the background of this? Yeah, so they're clearly in a house. Uh, I mean, the room is it says so filled. They, they, can't, they, can't in, they can't get in normally. So their plan is... We have to get to Jesus. I mean, they tear the roof off of the house, yeah. which I'm assuming it wasn't roofs like we think today in our own homes, but they, they open up the roof and they just drop the guy. There's no, I mean, no expectation that Jesus will do anything except, again, his compassion, his authority. And he sees them and, and then he does something that I, I don't think they were, they were expecting. They were expecting heal our friend. And he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Yes. And you can see immediately how... Um, the Pharisees are going to respond to that, right? They are doubting his authority. They're doubting whether anyone even can forgive sins this way. Yeah, it's interesting that that in their doubting, they're they're questioning among themselves. They didn't say this to Jesus, but it's another sign of his ability. He knew what their thoughts were. He could even read their thoughts and understand that they're questioning whether or not he has the ability to forgive sin. Which is kind of a great lesson for us, that when we have doubts, there's no sense hiding them from God. Like, it's okay. Just bring those doubts to the Lord. Come and dig in with other Christians and address those doubts because Jesus has a tremendous answer and tremendous evidence for them. Yeah. But but this this question that they're raising is correct. I mean this is another one of those places where Mark has kind of picked up out of teaching in the Old Testament only God could forgive sin. And and they were correct about that. So now you got to kind of question this if Jesus can demonstrate he can pr- can forgive sin, is that an indication that perhaps he is God among men? Yeah, I wonder if Jesus' response maybe shows that, like, again, though their question was correct, if the spirit in which yes. they had the question might have been a little indignant because he says, why are you reasoning these things in your heart? And, he's, and it's, which is easier. And then, he, and then I, again, I love just, just to show that I have the ability to do this, pick up your palate and walk. And immediately, which you have that, that, again, that immediate word there in the Gospel of Mark, but immediately he does it. And they were all glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. That's wonderful. So this healed man then is able to go back and be a testimony to his friends and his neighbors. But then we come to the story of Matthew, the story Mm -hmm. of Levi here, and he's not going to be sent away. He's actually invited, like those fishermen, to begin following Jesus. What should we learn about Matthew here? Again, I I think this is supposed to be kind of a bookend of sorts from when he calls the fishermen to now when he's calling Levi. He's calling anybody and everybody who's willing to come. I think we're supposed to see that. Because immediately afterwards, Matthew then gets his friends. Just like Jesus calls him, Matthew then goes and he calls people to come to his house to eat at his table. And they were all with Jesus. But then this kind of keys us up to the next conflict. If at first they're reasoning in their hearts, then they have another issue here uh, in chapter 2. Pharisees do with the tax collectors. Yeah, the, the, the precursor here is the fact that he's eating with sinners and associating with them. And we're beginning to see some of the tension that exists between Jesus and the, and the Jewish leaders. They, th- if they think of themselves as righteous, they think of themselves as being completely disassociated with sinners. And yet Jesus, that's who he's come for. You know? 
Yes, so he uses this great phrase about being a physician that's there to call the sick. But Russ, you mentioned attention. Elaborate on that a little bit more. What kind of tension is Mark helping us see build in these chapters? Well, he's already brought this tension of the idea that Jesus believes that he can forgive sins. And initially, they're they're just all kind of astonished at his ability to, to, to heal the man. But that doesn't say that they fully accepted that he really is who he seems to be claiming to be. And now this idea that he would associate himself with sinners, that doesn't seem to be in keeping with the, the religious teaching of the time. And we're about to lead into the next part of chapter 2, where he begins to do things uh, that are different than their practices. His disciples aren't fasting. They're doing things on the Sabbath day that that the uh, Jewish leaders were not typically approving. And that ends up then kind of leading us to chapter three, where they he enters the synagogue. And because of all this tension, now they, they're just looking at him and they're waiting to see what's he going to do. You know, they see a guy with a withered hand and they're not even thinking this guy needs help. What they're actually thinking is, how can we trap Jesus? That's that's where that tension leads them. It's not They're not looking for answers, real answers. What they're looking for at this point now is how, how can we find a way to cut him down? Right, they're looking to attack Jesus. And so whether it's his not fasting, his disciples not fasting, because it was a time of celebration, being in the presence of the Son of God, or the miracles that he's willing to perform on the Sabbath, correcting their misunderstanding and misapplication of Sabbath restrictions, they want to tear him down. Um, and so we see him rise to those occasions with the same qualities that have already been introduced. He rises to those occasions with authority. He rises to those occasions with compassion and with mercy. And it just makes us want to have more time with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it, like as, as they come up with this tension, they come up with these, these kind of questions or, or frustrations that they have at the end of chapter three or at the end of that story in chapter three, when he asks them, is it lawful to do good or to harm on the Sabbath to save a a life or to kill? At this point, I think this is intentional. They kept silent. And for a little while, they will be silent. And the story will kind of go away from them for a while because they don't have an answer. They have all this tension. They have all these frustrations. But Jesus has an answer for all of it. And then he 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 looks at them and he's 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 frustrated at them because of the, the the hardness of their hearts. He says in chapter three, he tells the man, "Stretch out your hand," and he stretched it out. But again, this doesn't relieve the tension for the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, now they just want to kill him. And, and that's a strange combination, by the way, the Pharisees and the Herodians. This is like the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the political, more worldly oriented. Herodians who would have been very closely associated with the Romans, now they're in league together thinking about how to deal with this man, Jesus. So, so you have this weird kind of this, this weird connection between the Pharisees and the Herodians. I think Jesus in the Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, you also see this like, who's Jesus associating with? We already saw that he's with the tax collectors and the sinners. And then as he continues, he goes to the, the vicinities of Tyre and Sidon. He's in Idumea. He's, I mean, he's, he's going away from where I think people would have expected the Christ to have gone. And in chapter, in chapter 3, starting in verse 13, he calls these 12 men to follow him and to, and, and to be the 12. And, and Philip, maybe what stands out to you about him calling the 12? Well, he brings people from many different backgrounds. And to your point, he's going all around the region of Galilee. He's not making a direct route down to Jerusalem to try to claim some kind of physical earthly throne. He's coming to the people. Mm -hmm. He's coming to everyday people. And there's a wide variety of backgrounds here among the 12. Some are very bold. Some are zealots. Some are going to ultimately betray him. But he takes this collection of followers and he begins training them and equipping them for 
the work of ministry that he's carrying out. He's modeling for them what they're going to be doing because Jesus is not just staying in one place. And Jesus is not just for one small group of people. This good news is going to be for the whole world, and they're going to be critical to that mission. I'm just going to jump back a couple of verses even before there's a detail that I think begins to be important. And it's going to happen again in chapter 4. By this point in time, he is so well known, and the crowds are so excited about both his teaching, but, but his healing especially, that he can't even stand on the shore. He has to get on a boat, kind of move himself a little bit away from the crowd who are standing there. He's being pressed in on every side. So what follows his selection of the 12 apostles is that even his own family now is worried about him. Yeah. What's going on with him? Yeah, I mean, I think in part, they think he's lost his mind. And what is happening? The, the fair, I mean, the, the Jews, they're like, well, he's just, he's got a demon inside him. Like, that's their conclusion. His family thinks he's out of his mind. But again, but for Jesus, again, you see, I think you see it in, in, the, in the people that he's calling and, and in his response. He'll tell them, like, look, you think that, I'm, that I've lost my mind or something like that. But really what I'm doing is I'm doing the will of the Father. And anyone who wishes to be a part of me will also do the will of the Father. Okay, so as we pull all that together, let's make that connection and that application to our friends and our family. Here at the end of chapter 3, what is it about the will of God that we want to bring into the communities we're part of? Yeah, this is really a, a, how we partake in Jesus, that, that even whenever he calls the 12, he calls them, and it says he calls them so that he could send them out to preach, which is what he was doing, to have the authority to cast out demons, which is what he was doing. And so he was calling people from anywhere and everywhere, but he was really calling them to be like him. And so whenever we do the will of the Father— We are being like Jesus and inviting other people to also be like Jesus. You know, I don't think that I've ever thought of it that way because to me it seems like such an honor to be called to be one of the apostles. Mm -hmm. But you're right. Like here, we're being called, yes, to be like him and then to be in his family. Mm -hmm. You can't get any closer than that, that he would say, look, here's my mother. Here's my brother. Whoever does the will of God, that's my family. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I think that family relationship really kind of stands out that you have that opportunity. He's, he's offering more than that. So if we look at the identity of, of Jesus in these chapters, we begin to see him as really being uh, God among men, God the Son, and now inviting us into this family relationship. We're beginning to get a sense of what God intended in the sending of Jesus, the, the blessing to, to all of us. And I wonder for us personally, so then we have to ask ourselves, well, what tensions do I have? Kind of as we see the tensions of the Pharisees, the Herodians, the scribes, what's going on in my heart that's that's getting in the way of me being a part of that family? Is there some frustration? Is there maybe some question I have, some doubt? Am I handling that correctly? Or am I just generally opposed because he's going against my traditions? He's going against how I grew up. He's going against the things that I would personally like. Because Jesus will create conflict in your heart if you're not seeking to do the will of the Father. Yeah, so being careful not to have a preconceived notion yeah. of who he is, what he believes in, but opening our mind to this word and, and to, to discovering what he really does expect of us. Absolutely. That's fantastic. So as we wrap up chapters 1 through 3 here in the book of Mark, we can see that Jesus is identified as the Son of God, that he's giving us tons of evidence to show that he's the Son of God, but he's challenging every single one of us to be willing to make some changes. And some of those changes are personal. Some of those changes are in our community and in our family. But following him is going to change our hearts, and it's going to change the way we live our lives. And and it will allow us to be a part of the family of God. And that's, again, all of this seems so strange that he would come, that he'd 
he, you know, would be with sinners and tax collectors, that he'd even entertain the arguments of the Pharisees, that he would call these 12. But, but all of it is about helping us understand, again, I think at the end of chapter 3, that what God is allowing us to be, is this Son of God is allowing us to be sons of God as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you today for joining us with A Year with Jesus as we've been covering Mark chapter 1 through 3. Join us next week as we get into Mark chapter 4 and chapter 5. If you'd like to see the full reading schedule to join in, please visit us at embryhills.com slash podcast.